0: I did request access from the gusman administration uh to go into the jail and you know they actually seemed open to the idea at first but um you know i requested several times and and it just never never happened so yeah i am hoping that there is more access in this administration you could just
1: get arrested nick
0: (laughs) that is that is always an option as well
1: (laughs) what crime are you going to commit
2: um
0: I don't know. I'm t- any suggestions?
2: You make it one of those oddball crimes that are still on the books from 150 years ago, like what you know, like washing your horse on a Sunday or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I would never wash my horse. On a Sunday.
1: <laughs> this is behind the lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, New Orleans City Council is making moves that could result in contempt charges being filed against three city officials linked to the failed Smart Cities program. Newly elected Orleans Parish Sheriff Susan Hudson has had a rough first month. As the school year closes and COVID cases rise, masks are back for New Orleans public schools. And we'll meet the newest reporter at The Lens. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. Hi, Nick.
2: Good morning, Carolyn.
1: Education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hi, Marta. Good morning, Carolyn. New environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg is here. Hi, Joshua. Hi, good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Good morning, birthday boy.
2: Good morning. Thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Joshua, let's start with you first. You're our newest reporter. You're an environmental reporter at The Lens. What were you covering before you moved to New Orleans?
3: So I was covering uh, federal tax policy for uh, a legal newswire called Law 360. I was based in Washington, D.C. Um, for a couple years covering Congress. And uh, then I was working remotely for, for a while Um Covering more features, stories through a program called Report for America, uh, which places uh, journalists in, in newsrooms throughout the country with the focus on uh, uh, coverage areas that, that are underreported.
1: And tell me about your pivot to environmental reporting. Why?
3: First of all, fascinated and um, passionate about the topic. Uh, it's 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 an area that affects all of us, in particular. The communities that, that have historically been underserved in, in our country and throughout the world really are uh, bearing the brunt and have borne the brunt um, so far as well. So there's, there, there's there's that dimension to it as well, e- even though obviously we're all um, affected by what happens to the planet and, and we all have a stake in that.
1: What are you most excited about covering in New Orleans?
3: will be writing about hurricanes, um, storm surges the disappearing wetlands the oil and gas industry uh, pollution so really a whole variety of different stories uh different topics and i have to say i'm 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 excited by by each and every one but uh, i'm particularly interested in uh, learning about and writing about stories from perhaps you could say an environmental justice lens so that's kind of my posture on it, if you will.
1: How's it been so far, your first week or so settling in?
3: It's been great. Uh, I feel like the welcome mat's been rolled out, uh, getting to know the different reporters here, the team members at, at the Lens, and I'm really impressed by them and the the work of theirs that I've read, the commitment. and expertise really shines through and um, i'm really happy and and honored to be part of the team and i just want everyone listening to know that i'm going to be all ears i I don't pretend to be an expert by any stretch of the imagination on the city or the environmental issues facing it at the moment so um i'm going to be really just listening and, and learning uh, throughout my whole time but especially right at the beginning so if, if anyone has any tips or suggestions um like i said all years and um, I'll, i will take it all to heart and if i if i can add first of all uh Josh,
2: welcome. Welcome to town and welcome to The Lens. Um, it's, it's great to have you here. Um, it's especially great because longtime readers will know that it's been quite some time since we've had a, uh, a dedicated environmental reporter at The Lens. We have uh, tried to keep up coverage of environmental issues to the best of our abilities without one, but frankly, we haven't been able to without a, without a dedicated reporter. Uh, uh, our last one was Bob Marshall, um, who was terrific, uh, but uh, uh, left us a few years back. So, again, this is great for us, um, and, uh, I, I, and I think great for our readers and for the city. And in addition, what I'm particularly excited about in this uh, new venture here, thanks to our partners at Report for America, is that Josh will be joining a team of journalists from across the country called the uh, Mississippi River Basin Agriculture and Water Desk. And uh, it's a team of newsrooms from up and down the, the, the Mississippi River corridor from uh, from Minnesota at the top to New Orleans at the bottom. So we are really excited about that work. Uh, they're going to be working together to produce uh, network-wide stories, so look for that in the next few months. And uh, once again, just uh, just glad to have you aboard, Josh, and thanks for coming on today.
3: Thanks, Charles.
2: Appreciate it.
1: Okay, we'll get to the news. Michael, first up with you, you reported this week that three top city officials may face contempt charges related to the ongoing Smart Cities investigation. Can you tell us what's happening here?
4: Yeah, so, you know, obviously we've been covering this Smart Cities issue for a while now. Um, We have been following contract fixing allegations, allegations of self-dealing that have really escalated over the past uh, couple months. Where we're at now is that the city council is conducting a formal investigation um, into these allegations. And as part of that, they have sent out subpoenas to five Cantrell administration officials. For three of them, their subpoenas were due on Tuesday of this week, Tuesday at 10 a.m. However, Tuesday at 10 a.m. came and the documents were not sent in. But we're waiting, you know, more or less they were waiting for a separate agency to tell them whether or not they should comply with the subpoena. Um, And, and, you know, one thing I'll mention right at the top, um, you know, we're talking on Thursday morning here. Um, There's going to be another update to this story um, that we are publishing later today. You know, that shows that it appears that the Cantrell administration is going to fight at least one of these subpoenas um, to try and, 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 you know, not have to hand over the trove of documents that the city council has demanded.
1: Michael, can you clarify? You said Cantrell administration is waiting on another agency to advise them or something. What's what's that about?
4: Yeah, so um, according to Councilwoman Helena Moreno, um, around noon on Tuesday, so a, a couple hours after the subpoena deadline, um, she got a call from the city attorney who informed her that the, the city was more or less waiting um on uh uh, the office of inspector general to respond to a letter that they had written um and in that letter um basically what they asked the office of inspector general was whether or not they were going to ask the city council to step back from its investigation the reason why they would write a letter like this is that there appears to be A simultaneous investigation by the the local office of inspector general along with the city council investigation into the same exact allegations Mm. and in this letter what the city attorney raises is is basically another instance in which the inspector general and the council had these simultaneous investigations um if you remember in 2019 the collapse of the hard rock hotel building the city council had announced its intention to open up an investigation Uh, In response, the the Office of Inspector General uh, had come out and publicly asked them to shelve and delay their investigation, basically to prevent their their investigation from interfering with the Office of Inspector General investigation. Now, at at the time, the Council heeded that advice, they dropped their own investigation and kind of let the Inspector General take over. now, in this case, basically, the council, the, the, the Cantrell administration was asking, well, are you going to ask uh, this again? Are you going to is the Office of Inspector General once again going to ask the council to step aside here? But I think what's what's different about this situation from the 2019 situation, um, you know, according to Councilwoman Helena Moreno, is that in this instance, it, it wasn't like the inspector general on its own decided that there was going to be some issue with the council investigation. So far, the the, the Office of Inspector General has released nothing publicly uh, about, you know, whether this council investigation would pose a problem for his investigation. And according to Councilwoman Moreno, he hasn't brought up any, you know, concerns in private at all about the council investigation. So in using Councilwoman Moreno's words here, it, it just kind of seems like the administration was prodding the invest- inspector general. Um, to basically ask the council to step down. And now I'll note that, you know, they're they're basically arguing that these two investigations are looking at the same thing, but there are some key differences to the investigations, namely that the Office of Inspector General is notoriously secret. So as this investigation goes on, as they conduct interviews, as they obtain documents, you know, we're not really going to see any of that. A city council investigation on the other hand is extremely public in fact in a lot of ways it's designed to be public um and so every time they question uh a, a, a someone under oath every time they get a new, t- new trove of documents the public will be able to see into every step of that so you know I, I, this is a bit of conjecture here but one reason the Cantrell administration might want there only to be an inspector general investigation is that that would go on behind the scenes
2: rather than all playing out in public. Right. That seems like a reasonable guess to me, but I just want to just note a couple things or at least reemphasize a couple things here. So again, the inspector general um, is clearly aware that there's a council investigation going on. In fact, the council asked the inspector general to conduct its own investigation of this. So, one would think that if the inspector general wanted the council to pause its investigation, pause its, its, its subpoenas and requests for documents, we would have known this before the deadline. Um, and the city would have known this before the deadline. It just seems odd to me that the deadline comes and goes, and we're cu- and, and now we're sort of scrambling to come up with this, what seems like kind of an, an excuse uh to to miss this deadline based on absolutely nothing based on no indication from the inspector general whatsoever
1: do you think they're planning on cooperating now michael
2: well a lot has changed in the
4: last day or so so you know basically on tuesday at noon this just to kind of lay out the timeline here tuesday at noon after the deadline has passed The city attorney tells the council, hey, we're waiting on the inspector general to respond to our letter, Um, you know, we'll we'll, we'll go forward after we hear back from the inspector general. Now, I, I should note that the council would argue that that is already violating the subpoena, you know, whether or not the inspector general, you know, is making a request to the council, the subpoena is a legally binding document. They were required to respond on time. So already the council has an issue there. We get to Tuesday evening and the city attorney emails Councilwoman Moreno again. This time she says that she's had a discussion with the inspector general. And as a result of that uh, discussion, she has informed these three city officials to fully respond to the subpoena as soon as possible. So at that point, it seemed like there was a short delay, but the administration was going to respond Then on Wednesday morning, uh, the inspector general actually sent a official letter to the administration saying that the office of inspector general had no plans to ask the council to put its investigation to the side. And that at the moment, it saw no reason why the council investigation would interfere with the inspector general investigation uh, in any way. Mm. However, this is where it gets a little more interesting in that on the same day that the inspector general sends this letter, uh, one of the three officials who had been subpoenaed files a lawsuit against the city council, mm. asking the court to squash this subpoena and basically rule it invalid. So, on Tuesday evening, hold on. On this...
1: what grounds? What, what are they? What are they basing that lawsuit on?
4: The, there's a couple reasons, but one of the central reasons that they cite in the lawsuit is that it would interfere with the Office of Inspector General investigation, Hmm. despite the letter that was sent on the same day the lawsuit was filed from the Inspector General saying that he didn't see any problems with the council investigation. Um, You know, there are a few arguments in the lawsuit, um, but again, they, they really, regardless of the Inspector General's position here, are still arguing that they need to drop this subpoena
2: for the good of the Office of Inspector General. Um, Wait, 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 wait. Can I, can can I, can you back up? Just a quick question, Michael. Uh, On top of that, are they at least, are they at least, uh, are they making any arguments like saying that this is a fishing expedition? They're seeking documents that are completely irrelevant to the investigation. Are there arguments that are central to the, to this motion, that don't have to do with the inspector general investigation yeah
4: yeah i was about to mention i I wouldn't say that there's anything in there that accuses them of of a fishing expedition expedition they do argue that the request is overly broad and overly burdensome uh for the administration they also argue that having to comply with two investigations at the same time would be a burden on the administration that would interfere with its ability to you know function as a government to manage the government mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. um you know so there are arguments here um outside of of the invest- in, in inspector general investigation although i will say on on the, you know it, i think it's interesting the, the the argument that the request is is overly broad and burdensome is interesting because we know that two officials have already, um, you know, sent over, you know, pages, thousands of pages of documents um, based off these subpoenas. So we know that some of these, you know, some of these officials have are attempting to try, Um, you know, the the one official in the, um, the lawsuit is uh, Clifton Davis, who is Cantrell's chief of staff. I have not, as of, 9.30 a.m. on Thursday. I haven't seen lawsuits filed for any of the other officials, Um, but I I will also note that the lawsuit is filed by Clifton Davis,
2: but it notes that it is filed in his capacity as Cantrell's chief of staff. The two that have already turned over over their documents. First of all, they were the first ones being investigated. They were the first ones kind of being offered up. To the council for questioning and everything else. Secondly, and possibly relevantly, here I'm not sure. I'm, this is just something for people to note. These three new people um, who are, who are facing this contempt charge, and and one of whom, the chief of staff, is is fighting it, in, is fighting the subpoena in court. These are people who, uh, especially the chief of staff, this is mayor's inner circle. Whereas Jonathan Rhodes and Chris Wolf, the two other officials, were not. So that that might be something important here as to, you know, speaking to why perhaps the administration is a little more reluctant to comply with this new round of subpoenas.
4: Yeah. And I'll mention, I'll mention one more thing real quick, which is that, you know, you know, the the, the first subpoena that was sent out was for Jonathan Rhodes. And when the, the documents came back, I mean, he, he handed over, you know, a, a lot of documents, a lot of emails, but I'll say that off the bat council members had complained that the records looked incomplete you know regardless of you know the number of records they still said this does not fully comply with the subpoena you know that we issued so there may be a legitimate fear here that even if the administration tries to hand over a lot of documents that they could be legally out of sync with what the subpoena requires Um, and maybe they're worried about legal liability there. Now, they have not given me that argument. I don't know if that's, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how legitimate that is. But I will say that the council has already criticized one of the uh, officials for, you know, not handing in as many documents as they believed they were owed, um, which might, you know, speak to why the administration is saying that this is overly broad here. Um, But again, you know, regardless of if, you know, the, the council... Has criticisms here or there about something that should have been included that wasn't. Two of these officials have at least made some effort to provide a large set of documents that that do give genuine insight into how this whole thing worked. Um, so again, whether this is overly broad, I mean, uh, you know, they're going to figure that out in the court. But we do already have people um, that are trying.
1: It's getting swampy. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Government and Cultural Economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, Criminal Justice reporter Nick Krastel, Education reporter Marta Jusen, Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on donations to fund our work. Please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelinsnola.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. Nick, newly elected Orleans Parish Sheriff Susan Hudson inherited a bit of a mess. Her first month has been um, plagued by problems. Can you tell us about
3: about it? Sure. So Susan Hudson, you know, was elected uh,
0: back in December um, and she defeated a uh, longtime sheriff, Marlon Gussman, who held the office for 17 years. So, so she was elected in December and then had this, you know, five month, um, transition period, which is sort of unusual. And I I think the product of, of her being a a parish official rather than a city official, there was a much shorter transition period, but during that time, you know, we got some periodic updates, uh, from her about how the transition was going and she at times seemed a little like the communication wasn't going so great between, uh, her and former sheriff Marlon Gussman um at one point she sent in this extensive public records request trying to kind of get at all these documents um that that she wanted prior to her taking office which i think sort of signaled that maybe there wasn't a um an open sort of exchange of these things happening without you know more formal requests so that was something to keep an eye on although there, there wasn't any big uh, blow up fights or anything. So when I, I, I went in and, and, and sat down for an interview with her and her executive staff a couple of weeks after she took office, what she said was that basically there was no transition, that there was very little cooperation from Gustin's administration. Um, she wasn't able to access the jail as freely as she would have liked. She had written out a, a memorandum of understanding between um, her and the former sheriff, and he declined to sign it. He said he was going to abide by it, but declined Senate. She says that he did not.
1: And Nick, um, let me let me ask you either. that that MOU that you refer to would have allowed her to to sort of operate within the office and kind of transition or almost train her and her staff on the workings, the um, you know the ins and outs, day to day stuff. And he- yeah, that's
0: right. The, the MOU wasn't super detailed, but it did. One of the things it did allow her to was was sort of some workspace within the jail facility um or within the jail building i should say um and it sounds like that that did not happen um
2: and and, and by the way nick i mean i I would just say that i don't that sort of thing does not sound that unusual or unreasonable to me allowing her that sort of access we're talking about a 17-year incumbent Um, so you know this this is, you know, the people there are entrenched They're, you know, they 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 have done things that the, the way that Gusman wants them to do them for 17 years. And now somebody brand new is coming in with no real connection to this administration, the Gusman administration. You know, let's not also forget the size and scope of responsibilities of this institution. This is a very complex, large and expensive office and and and, you know, allowing and allowing the new administration access to me, seems like a very reasonable ask of Hudson. Mm. Yeah,
1: along those yeah. lines, it's been a long time, Charles, you just said it was 17 years. Gusman was in, in place 17 years. Do we have any idea of when he took over from his predecessor? Was he given that same uh, license to, to come in and, and train, if you will?
2: That's actually That's a good, a very good question. question. I'm not sure. Nick? Do you know yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know, know. know. Yeah, that was a good question. Yeah. Um, yeah unfortunately, do not have the answer. But. but, I mean, you know, we have seen other we've seen other transitions in the past couple of years, right? I mean, we saw I mean, obviously, the mayoral transition is going to be a much larger affair than a sheriff's transition. But, you know, just to give you an example of the, you know, the, the mayoral administration, you know, from what everything I'm aware, the Lander administration gave, uh, gave Cantrell's people as much access as they wanted. Um, because be, for the same reasons, they are taking over this massive enterprise. Uh, you know, the city is much more massive, but but, but the, sh- the sheriff's office and the jail is pretty big too.
1: So tell us some of the things that she inherited that, that have been problematic.
2: Well, there are a few things. So in
0: addition to sort of the long difficulty of the transition, this, this actually didn't make it into the story I wrote, but but she was initially supposed to take over the office officially on midnight on May 3rd. So her inauguration was May 2nd, and she was going to come get the keys to the jail and, and take over the office at, at midnight that night. Apparently, uh, Gustman called her that weekend um, on the Sunday. Her inauguration was Monday, and she ended up actually getting the keys to the jail on, on, on Sunday afternoon. So, so she is then sort of in, con- in control of things, ostensibly. Um, on Sunday, her inauguration is Monday, and on Monday afternoon, she gets a, a call uh, as she's kind of doing this inauguration parade that someone detained at the jail has gone to the hospital. And I think it was determined later that, that it was an overdose. Um, so she's navigating sort of all of this as she's going through the inauguration process, oh. really trying to get a handle on things. So that's how that's how everything started um, oh. for her. The day after, I believe it was the day after, within a few days of her taking office, a, a police precinct gets a call that... Someone has seen people breaking out of the jail. Oh. Um, so the the precinct calls the jail. They do a full lockdown, do several counts of the jail uh, of the people incarcerated inside. Determine that it there there hasn't been uh, an escape that everyone's accounted for. Hmm. And later on, they they trace this you know reported escape attempt to someone who, filming a TikTok video outside of the jail. It's, it's some people in orange jumpsuits. So that that those are kind of like the The first major events of her administration, I think, it, it sounded like it was a sort of jarring introduction to the office. She was uh, very complimentary of, of how her staff handled it, but aside from sort of the those difficult events during during the escape attempt, she, her administration found several cameras that that were out and. There's sort of a broader issue in her mind of, of the infrastructure at the jail not having been maintained, right? And sort of the the jail facility itself not having been designed correctly um, in the first place. So that that was a major thing that, that she brought. up.
1: Yeah. So some of the things are a little bit um, I wouldn't say trivial, but you know, a little more. You shake your head and think, okay, it was a it was a tough race. The former sheriff. Lost and has probably been licking his wounds a little bit, and so some of that you can you understand some of that transitional problems. However, some of the things that you reported um, impact public safety, and there there were some real issues that are kind of coming to light with the transition that are a little more problematic than just someone's ego being hurt. Can you can you describe some of those?
0: Yeah, so one of the things was bag scanner, the X-ray bag scanner entering the jail that um, was supposed to be used for deputies and and other employees who are who are going into the jail facility has been was broken, according to Hudson when she when she came into office and there was not of order sign posted on it, and she you know there are is a, is sort of a, a maintenance order request that that uh, her administration shared with me that shows. Uh, going back to January, so several months that, that this was broken, according to her administration, people were putting their their items in in clear plastic bags, but they weren't really being searched regularly. And then there's also a body scanner at the jail, um, but and that was being used for for sort of rank and file uh, deputies who were who were going in to the jail, but not used for higher level employees of the sheriff's office. So not everyone was going through the scanner. One of the first things she did was sort of implement a new policy where now no one can bring any items into the jail and everyone has to go through the body scanner. And, you know, I brought this up to, to the former sheriff, my investment, and he, he just denied it. He basically said, no, everything was working um, when I left. There was nothing, nothing wrong. Um, you know, so I and there's a chance that he wasn't aware of it. But it's kind of hard to hard to figure out what what was going on there. So that was one thing. The cameras again, there were several security cameras that were out. This is something that has been brought up in the Consent decree monitors report is that occasionally these cameras will go out, and they basically said you guys need to do a better job of auditing this and, and you know taking stock of which cameras are working, which cameras are not. The degree to which you know this was sort of an inevitable part of how the jail runs and that sometimes cameras are going to go out and that there's really no amount of sort of diligence that that will make sure every camera is working all the time. I'm not sure. Hudson seemed very concerned about it. The new sheriff said, Mm. you know, this is inexcusable. We can't have have these cameras. uh, Well,
2: well, yeah. and And the other thing is maybe cameras go out sometimes. Sure. I don't know. But, um, in a jail where we have repeatedly seen, Arrests, uh, arrests of deputies for bringing in contraband, for bringing in cell phones, for bringing in drugs, to have the X-ray scanner broken for, what, it, four or five months, right? I mean, yeah. that seems, I, you know, okay, maybe cameras break. We can maybe write that off as just, you know, cost of doing business in a jail. But having something that important, to me, seems like that that is very troubling to have that go on for four or five months without without it being taken care of.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that that certainly is the new administration's position, too. I think they were really startled by that. Those are sort of, sort of some of the, the issues they're dealing with. Also, there's lots of things in the jail that can be sort of taken apart. And the concern is that, that detainees are, are doing this and using metal from cabinets and, and other things to, to kind of to fashion weapons. And this actually was a major part of, of the last Compliance Monitor's report. And Hudson sort of echoed these concerns and she basically said, you know, people are taking apart the the jail. And so she is trying to deal with that as well. There's also issues with sort of sight and um, observation in the jail, the way it was constructed. I haven't been inside the jail, so it's kind of, I'm, you know, repeating what what people have said to me and and actually what other, what monitors have also uh, brought up, but it's hard to maintain good lines of sight in the facility at all times. And that's exacerbated by the fact that the sheriff's office is extremely short-staffed. Um, and
2: and, and uh, yeah, just let me, uh, let me just add one thing and also ask you, Nick, a question. Um, so Nick, our criminal justice reporter mentions he hasn't been inside the jail. That may sound odd to some listeners. So first of all, Nick has been in the public areas, of the jail, he's been, you know, in, in the areas where the public can access, but one of the things about the Gasman administration uh, that they were famous for was restricting public access, particularly press access to the parts of the jail where inmates live um, and you know and uh, in inmate common areas. the end of his tenure when the new jail was built, the press was given a couple of tours right off the bat when it, when it opened and a few months later and since then and before then, Comple- completely blocked access even though even even when it was you know what the jail looked like was and 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 how the jail um you know how the jail operated inside was essential for to to understand certain things happening in the news we just were never allowed that access under the Gusman administration and i'm curious has sheriff hudson at all discussed about being a little more open to giving the press access to to see how this jail actually operates yeah she i mean she has her
0: administration has been has said that they they are planning on doing a sort of media tour i think in the very near future so we'll see i mean i started on this beat full-time right at the beginning of covid so obviously there wasn't you know access at that point but sort of once things settled down and cases uh started declining I did re- request access from the Gusman administration uh, to go into the jail, and you know they actually seemed open to the idea at first. But um, you know I requested several times, and and it just never never happened. So, yeah, I'm hoping that there is more access in this administration to the actual facility itself. And once once I get inside there, we can have another
2: update. But anyway, speaking speaking of openness and transparency, I, I don't believe you all have covered this yet. There there was a, there. There also is a potential issue with records from the Gusman administration and what's going on there and what's behind it? Why, do the, why does the Hudson administration think, think there's this issue?
0: What I can say is that the administration says they're investigating missing or destroyed records that they suspect were either destroyed or, or, or you know, hidden on purpose. Um, so, you know, the implication there is that an outgoing Gusman official, and I should say that... Almost nearly a dozen high level Gussman administration officials have, have left under the, the Hudson administration. So there's been a major turnover um, of of high level people. And they say that the documents have, have gone missing. Um, and so that's basically what I know. They won't they say they don't want to say anymore, that there's an ongoing investigation, they don't want to tip anything off, but really won't won't give me any, any more. than
1: rough transition. All right. Thanks, Nick. All
0: right. Thank you.
1: Marta, we're winding down school for the year. However, the New Orleans Public Schools District is once again recommending students and staff wear masks in school buildings and at school functions. Why now? What's happening?
5: Yeah. So last week we um, kind of vaulted into the CDC's uh, category of high community risk for COVID spread. Um, we are seeing increasing number in cases. Our percent positivity has continued to increase increase. Um, I just checked right now. It's up from 9.6% last week to 11 and change. Um, So, you know, I think we're still, we're not quite out of this wave yet.
1: Okay. School's winding down, but there are events going on.
5: Yeah. I mean, there's still like graduations taking place. Summer school is going to start up and, you know, there are going to be situations where students and staff are together and, you know, like a a graduation or other summer activities and classes, uh, we're certainly going to you know, see kids group together. And I think they just want to mitigate that potential spread.
1: And again, it's a recommendation. So what does that mean?
5: Right. So it's a recommendation. We have a decentralized school system. The charters are their own, you know, for lack of a better term, districts, essentially. Um, So I did reach out to a few of them yesterday. Uh, What I know is that Crescent city schools and first line schools are going to follow that recommendation. And they said that they are requiring masks on the other hand i talked to kip and they said that they are just making it optional so it's really
2: up to the charters themselves i say yeah and then kip kips notable because that is of course the largest charter network in the city by far right 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 i think they have 12 to 14 percent of the students in the city
1: yeah so though at those schools and those events they will have masks required
5: uh yeah the two first networks i um, mentioned but kip is making it optional
1: Okay. And you said just a minute ago that we're up into the 11s now with the transmission rate or the positivity rate. Any idea of whether the city will reinstitute a mask mandate?
5: You know, I didn't reach out to the city. Um, I think based on what we've seen, because we have this has been happening for a while, um, you know, after Jazz Fest, I think they were so excited to kind of be out of that potentially out of hot water, and we saw them lift the mask mandate, you know, the day after Mardi Cross. So I think it's probably unlikely that we'd see any mandate like that come back.
2: Yeah, I would say I would say um you know the city had or the, the 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 mayor's office has 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 issued a mask recommendation so an optional but you know they're urging people to wear masks in public and indoor spaces. Um and I'll also say that uh you know watching a city press conference yesterday uh city officials have definitely gone back to modeling mask wearing in public. Mm. Um I suspect and I don't know that the city is the metric that they're keeping the closest eye on where we have not seen these kinds of spikes that we've seen in the infection rate, the metric they're looking at most closely is probably hospitalizations um, before they start thinking about reinstituting any mandates. Mm, Okay. All
1: right, Marta, thank you. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Thank you. Welcome, Joshua.
2: Yeah. Welcome, Josh. And thanks, Carolyn.
1: Thank you, guys. Have a good week. You
2: too. Bye, guys.
1: This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusin, Joshua Rosenberg, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.